everybody, welcome to Performance Anxiety. This week is a very special show. It's our 50th, and we have a special guest with us. Bruce Pavitt, the founder of Sub Pop Records, joins us. He talks about the early days of Sub Pop, going from compilations to the Singles Club to the joint release of Nirvana's Nevermind album with Geffen Records. There's also possibly some unreleased Kurt Cobain recordings out there that Bruce tells us about. Then there's a time he went on tour with Nirvana and Tad in Europe, 1989. Some great stories there. Check out his website, brucepavitt.com, where you can buy his books. Check him out on social media to see what he's up to. He's also a DJ. It's Bruce Pavitt on Instagram and Twitter and brucepavitt.com. Check us out on social media at PerformanceANX on Twitter and Instagram. And don't forget to check out our merchandise at performanceanx.threadless.com. Please enjoy our 50th show with Sub Pop founder Bruce Pavitt. This is Bruce Pavitt of Sub Pop Records, and you're listening to Performance Anxiety. Ah, good time. I was just about to call you. Thank you so much for, for doing this. I really do appreciate it, man. 100%. Thank you for your interest. The sub pop was, I mean, to me, it was like, it was pretty much everything in the really late 80s, really early 90s for me. It was graduating high school, going to college, and that was my soundtrack, man. Everything that was coming out on the label, it was it was amazing. Sweet. I appreciate that. Can I ask where you grew up? Oh, yeah. I grew up actually in New Jersey. Oh, where you were at that? Okay. Yeah, and I went to school up in Rochester, New York at RIT. Uh, majored in photography, so uh, the artwork that you guys did was a huge influence on what I wanted to do uh, at school. Not really able to accomplish it, unfortunately, because I'm not doing photography anymore. But, but uh, I mean, the layouts, the 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 you know Charles Peterson's work, everything combined was just a huge influence on me. Well, thank you so much. Uh, I was the art director there at that time, and and I have to say that. When I came across uh, some three foot by four foot Charles Peterson images, and he was creating those through uh, University of Washington on their printer, as soon as I saw those images, I knew that uh, Sub Pop could really start focusing on on Seattle bands because we had had a look. Up until that point, I had been releasing mixtapes of demos from around the country. Uh, I had released a compilation called Sub Pop 100, which again was was bands from around the country. But as soon as I saw Charles's images, I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> we attach these to Green River and Soundgarden, got something. So it was a real epiphany. I've seen, and, and going to, to school for it, you know, I got to see a lot of the classic photographers, the great images, but to see, you know, real bands and and all the motion and and energy in those photos it was just it was revelatory for me like i don't have to do these amazing setup photog you know photographs i don't have to do everything in a studio I don't, and uh you know the concert photographs aren't always the uh the rolling stones ones or the led zeppelins you see it's it's bands like nirvana and soundgarden who are just so into it and so energetic that you can do something besides absolutely yeah besides all this set up work that well, i was seeing absolutely and I, I think one thing one of the 
you know, some of the factors that, that really engaged people were the fact that these shows were in small, were in small clubs. Okay. So mm-hmm. they're very intimate. You talk about Rolling Stones, et cetera, and cla- you know, classic live concert photos would emphasize how big the crowd was, you know, and how yeah. important the band was because there's 30,000 people. We did the exact opposite. It's like, there's only a hundred people in the room yeah. and the photographer is getting put the stage right as he's clicking the camera and what charles did very consciously is he tried to capture the interaction between the band and the fans so typically his photos would include uh music fans and so my theory is kids kids in washington dc are picking up these these records like super fuzz big muff by by mud honey or their second album in there they're picturing themselves at these clubs in this scene and lo and behold we had caravans of of young young hipsters come to seattle and uh, it changed the sea forever and i th- i think charles peterson's peterson's images along with the music really helped to um uh, attract people to seattle Oh yeah, I mean, it attracted a lot of attention. It attracted it got me there because that's one of the first things I actually the first thing that I the first Charles Peterson album I can actually remember seeing is actually uh, Soundguard is louder than love, and then going backwards from there. I mean, I, I got that when that first came out. A friend of mine uh, had I don't know if he had Ultra Mega OK or had just gotten louder than love, and I heard it. And I'm like, oh my gosh. I got to get these guys. And then so I started working my way backwards and then finding them on, on Sub Pop and then finding Mud Honey and then finding Green River. And, and it was just and then finding what was on the well, roster what, at that point. Uh, awesome. A uh, little anecdote here. Um, A&M Records actually flew me down to L.A. to give them some advice about the cover art. Oh, really? And my advice is you just got to you got to keep it real simple. That's the whole deal. You know, you get a great live Charles Peterson shot of Chris Cornell on there and, and don't, don't get too complicated. It's all about the impact, the emotional impact of that, that photo. And so the, the, that was essentially the, the art director for that, for that record uh, for the front, not the back. Right. Uh, I, I'm just curious. I'm sorry. Where, where are you based? Where are you talking from right now? Oh, right now I'm actually about, uh, I guess 75 miles due west of D.C. I'm in Winchester, Virginia. Oh, okay, cool. I'm just trying to get get some context here. Oh, yeah, yeah. The home of Patsy Um, Cline. Cool, cool. Well, I did... uh, I'm just going to jump in here for a second. We were talking about photos and images and so forth. Yeah. I just wanted to share some information that's that's relatively new. Um, About uh, six six years ago, I, I published a book called Experiencing Nirvana, which was essentially a collection of photos of Nirvana, Mud, Honey, and Tad as they were touring Europe back in 1989, and they were playing to crowds of 100 to 200. Oh, and all man. three groups wound up uh, meeting in London for a sub-pop showcase in December of 89, and that really helped uh, with the momentum of what was going on with sub-pop and Nirvana in particular. And so this book has some anecdotes, but it's also got a lot of real intimate photos. And just recently, uh, I've set up an an art show that's going up in uh, a couple of weeks 
right outside of Fort Lauderdale, Florida. So if any of your listeners are, are anywhere near Fort Lauderdale, they should go to the Pompano Beach Cultural Center. I've got uh, a lot of rare Cobain and Nirvana photos up in that. And I'll be doing a, a, a lecture, a multimedia lecture in, on September 21st. Oh, wow. I'll also be doing a lecture up in uh, in Utica, New York. Am I pronouncing that correctly? You're probably familiar. Where was it again? So the uh, Utica, U-T-I-C-A, oh, Utica. U-T-I-C-A, Utica, New York. Utica. Yes. So I'll be doing a, a lecture there on uh, November 1st. So I just signed that contract two days ago. So just sharing some information. And I will be, these talks will be focusing on a lot of these rare photos and what it was like oh, in the grassroots awesome. period of helping to build that scene. That is and fantastic. I'm just going to throw one more thing out there. I'm working. Oh, I really appreciate that. I'm working with a company in Detroit called uh, One Time One X Run, who does limited edition prints. So anybody interested in getting a hold of, of some of these images uh, very soon this summer, probably in the next 30 to 60 days, We'll be releasing a series of these images on the website One X Run out of Detroit. So this has all just come into focus in the past week or so. So that's some fresh information. Oh, man, that's fantastic. Breaking news here on Performance Anxiety. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, thank you, man. I appreciate it. that's that's fantastic. I I love the photography. I've seen so much uh, work from a lot of different people in the that time frame and uh it, it's all just it's amazing looking back on it now how young everybody was oh yeah yep when, absolutely i think uh was 21 started work with him oh my gosh so you started off in olympia though is that right that's correct okay and so sub pop that is correct yeah so sub pop was a more like a, a fanzine and so the first four editions didn't have any uh, cassettes or any music accompaniment. It was it was it just reviews or, or was it uh, commentary or what was it like? I've, I've never had the chance to yeah. see the first few editions. Well, uh, I will mention that I, I did publish all those zines in a book called Sub Pop USA. So fans can go straight to Amazon and, and order that. Uh, what, what I did was pretty unusual at the time, starting in 1980. I started reviewing a lot of rare, obscure indie records from around the country, a lot of records that were really being ignored. And then I would provide mailing addresses for those records so that people could get a hold of them. Oh, cool. And I organized the records regionally so, so people could flip through and go, oh, Washington, D.C., what's going on there? Oh, Bad Brain single, that kind of thing. Oh, Minor Threat. And so just by organizing the record reviews regionally, people started to get a feel for the, the flavors of the different underground scenes. And of ah, course, this is all pre-internet. That's, you know, that's, sounds like it would, at the time, especially, it was groundbreaking. That's, I, I don't remember ever seeing anything like that. It, it was pretty groundbreaking. Typically, if you went to a, a big store in Chicago, let's say Wax Trax Records, which is one of the premier indie stores in the country, you could pick up New York Rocker, you could pick up Slash from LA, uh, and you could read about what was going on in New York or LA or San Francisco. Maybe you pick up a fanzine from Chicago, but you wouldn't be able to find out anything about Seattle, for example. You wouldn't be able to find out anything about Detroit. So I realized there was a huge 
huge gap in uh, in this information. So I was really motivated to share information about local scenes, and that's always kind of been my interest. So when you were growing up, to just backtrack a little bit more, was your house a musical house? Did you guys uh, have a lot of music going through? Is that what piqued your interest in music and, and, and doing a zine like that? Well, uh, I will say that as, as a young kid, um, I, I bought a transistor radio and listened to it all the time. That, that was what I would do. I, was get, I would get on my bike and listen to Top 40 radio, which at the time, I was born in 1959, Top 40 radio back then was, was actually pretty good. You know, you'd hear the Beatles and yeah. James Brown and Motown. There was a lot of stuff. And uh, I became really obsessed with music. When I was nine years old, I actually, this is a true story, I'm nine years old, I sold Christmas cards door-to-door in the summer. Now, try imagine trying to do that. I think a lot of people see on me, and I, I, I made 40 bucks, and I went and I bought a record player with that 40 bucks, and after that, I pretty much spent all my money on records from the age of nine. So I've been kind of a music obsessive for, for quite a while. Oh, my gosh. That, that, that was uh, basically my story, but a little bit later, I was in – college and every single dollar i earned went to a lot of sub pop stuff to be honest with you so um so really appreciate that thanks for helping the lights on (laughs) well my the little bit that i was that that i contributed man i was happy to do it um so what made the what made you take the leap and on sub pop five to include a cassette well uh i had heard a literally a cassette magazine from Australia and it was called Fast Forward. It was very interesting. It would have music, but it also have interviews. They thought, wow, cassettes are really getting some traction. The the Walkman had just come out and it was obvious that you could share music with people uh, on cassette and uh, you could print up as few as 10 or 100 or a few hundred unlike records in which the 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 smallest run was typically 500. So I immediately grasped that you could distribute music without a lot of cash, which I did not have. Right. <laughs> and it was just kind of a, and I thought cassettes, I'll do a cassette version. And I alternated between the cassette zine and uh, the printed zine for a while. Went up to like issue number nine. I did three cassettes and the cassettes did well. The first one. Uh, I sold like 2000 copies, which back in the day was, uh, was, was huge. And the bands who forwarded me their demos were stoked cause they started getting fan mail from all over the world. Oh, cool. And it, it, it worked. It worked. And I was just a, a very poor college student with a, with a, with a tape recorder in my living room, busting out these tapes and <laughs> it, it worked. So, so, so it's about as DIY as you can get. Yeah, yeah, very punk. Sub Pop Five. Very punk. Sub Pop Five included a song by you called Debbie. That is correct. Did, were you involved in and, bands? Uh, I, yeah, I, I was in, involved in bands. I was, you know, I was the the 1980. That era was, you know, 79, 80, 81. It was kind of a quote unquote post punk era. 
So there was more experimental stuff coming out. And uh, I was in a local group uh, called Tiny Holes that was influenced by the pop group. And in fact, K Records just released an album of ours a, a month ago. Oh, wow. And, uh, and you know, as, as a 21-year-old board college student, uh, I, was, I was making weird music. <laughs> uh, that a, a handful of people appreciated. And that's kind of what the scene was like back then. It was just a network of hobbyists and amateur, inspired amateurs putting out crazy stuff, and occasionally some of it would be interesting or entertaining. So the first couple zines with the cassettes, were were you advertising for bands to send you stuff to put out on this, or were you just kind of picking yeah. songs that you liked? or and, uh, I, what was the criteria for getting on to I, there? Would, would anybody like rejected? Uh, <laughs> well, I do have a story. Um, basically, I would approach certain bands. I was getting records in the mail, and if I was inspired by a certain group, I would, I would, I would at, make a request, and it's that seemed to work. Uh, I do. <laughs> I only rejected one tape. Um, that's a long story. I, I can't really go into that right now, but it's, it's <laughs> essentially I was, I was suggesting the group send in their stuff. And what I was really proud of, uh, probably more than anything, is I contacted an illustrator named Charles Burns, who went on to become very well known in the uh, in the graphic community. And he had also gone to Evergreen State College in Olympia, which is the school that I went to. Okay. And his illustrations. Okay. Uh, were excellent, and if you Google Sub Pop Five, you'll you'll see what I'm talking about. He was super talented. He went on to do like cover art for Iggy Pop, and he even did a cover for Time Magazine and so forth. So he's oh, he's wow. become kind of a legend, and I, I I got him involved super super early. So my tapes looked looked really good uh, be, because of his talent. There's a turning point here. When you get to Sub Pop 100, Sub Pop 200, um, after you start actually releasing uh, EPs and, and singles by by bands, like uh, the the uh, yep. Singles Club starts to come around. How did you guys? How did you go from just doing yep. compilations to having bands record songs specifically for you? Sure. Well, the the first album was a compilation, and that was kind of an extension of the cassettes. And I thought, well, let's get some cash together because it was a lot more expensive to do that. And that album sold 5,000 copies, which again at that time was, was really, really good. So I knew I, I had kind of developed this brand sub pop. I did the zines, I did the record and kind of, as I stated, uh, Charles Peterson's photos were very inspiring, but also there was a local compilation called deep six that really uh, kind of gave focus to this grungy new sound that was happening in Seattle. So uh, I started focusing on that. I was a huge Green River fan and went to all their shows. Soundgarden, I went to their shows. I actually grew up with uh, the guitarist Kim Thile in Illinois, so I had been friends oh, cool. with him for ages. So things just kind of naturally came together. Again, funds were always hard to come by. Uh, I borrowed some money from my dad to put out the Green River record. And then I met John Poneman, who became my business partner. And he scraped together some some funds. And we got Soundgarden going. And we opened up an office 
in April of 1988 with just uh, three records in our catalog there. Wow. And it was very slow-going. Singles were cheaper to put out, so that's one of the reasons we were pumping out a lot of singles. Touch Me, I'm Sick by Mud Honey came out that summer, did well, and then that fall we released Love Buzz by Nirvana. And uh, we really started to get some traction as people became more and more engaged with uh, the records, which were produced by Jack and Dino. A lot of fans know that. Oh, yeah. So awesome. it's, the records had a look and a, a look and a sound. And, uh, you know, I think we really kind of helped put Seattle on the map there. Oh, absolutely. Musically, for sure. But the the look you know sub pop definitely had its own look and it was uh i mean you pulled something out you knew it was a sub pop release was that something that you based on like i don't know like um, like motown or or one of the other record labels that would have a, a very specific style yeah mm-hmm. yes we're the uh, in particular uh i was influenced by a jazz label called blue note that had a very specific uh, style yeah I know every blue, time you yeah. pick up a blue note you go, oh, wow, here's a vibe. There's a photo. It's usually tinted, and uh, the, the logo is on the front of the cover. So we kind of referenced Blue Note. Also, uh, Factory Records in the U.K. had a very distinctive look and a very distinctive sound. So we were definitely drawing on, on those kind of uh, references. We wanted to ha- build a brand. And we wanted people to pick up a record and instantly know as a sub pop record. So that was that was a very conscious decision on our part for sure. And you guys also had a, a great sense of humor and a great sense of irony in a lot of the marketing and publicity that you did. You know, the shirts that said "Loser" on it, the Singles Club. I remember it's, it started off with "Hey Loser" and it, telling you a little bit about the club. And it's you know it's not the Alanis Morissette kind of irony. I mean, it's actual real irony. Um, I read a. a and we tried to straddle that we you know uh punk rock at that time and you know a lot of these bands were were rooted in punk sensibility and of course all of them had seen black flag live and but they you know they had other influences as well but a lot of punk rock at that time had become uh, a little too uh serious frankly. And, okay. uh, the, the musicians I was working with had, had more of a sense of humor and they were really more about kind of like doing shows for a cathartic release and, and humor was a huge part of that. So Mark Arm, super funny guy, Tad was funny. Uh, Kurt Cobain was funny. A lot of these musicians really shared uh, a sense of humor. So they did not take themselves too seriously. And I think what we did at and Sub Pop was like, okay, let's take some corporate lingo and and uh, work it in a way that, that can sell music that's essentially punk rock. And uh, at its core, this will distinguish us from everybody else. And, and when, you, when you've got, when you're trying to build a, you know, you could say build a brand or what have you, when you're trying to get people's attention – you you need to try and do something different. And a lot of the culture that I saw was pretty formulaic. Bands had to sound a certain way or look a certain way. And 
we kind of shifted gears a little bit. Yeah, and it, it, I read a, a quote from uh, Chris Cornell recently in, in doing research for for this interview, and he said, I remember running into Bruce around 1988, and I mentioned how there just suddenly seemed to be so much talent in Seattle. And he put his arm around me and had this funny, confident look in his eyes. He said, Seattle's going to take over the world. He was being tongue-in-cheek, yeah. but not really. He seemed serious about it. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> well, the, the thing is, by by eighty seven, eighty eight, it really did seem like Seattle uh, was was on to something. And my feeling at that time was my my serious feeling at that time was that Seattle, what was going on in Seattle, could be the equivalent of let's say what happened in Detroit in the late sixties, early seventies, with like the Stooges and MC Five, mm-hmm. not necessarily sell a lot of records but create records that would really have an impact and would become more legendary and that was that was really my intuition uh i really had absolutely no idea that these bands would start selling tens of millions of records that was completely beyond my frame of mind (laughs) i was you know yeah i think it's beyond everybody's at that time you know I think, you know, you sell 50 to 100,000 records, that's that's knocking it out of the park. Um, so it just it just got bigger and crazier and crazier and crazier as things evolved with the movies and documentaries and and just everything and runway shows and it just it grew into kind of a hilarious situation and frankly we thought that we thought it was crazy and kind of funny, you know, because we kept saying it was going to blow up and then it blew up beyond our expectations. <laughs> so, so we were actually just cracking up the whole time. And with the original singles club and the, and the first singles that you guys were releasing, now those the bands weren't really on a contract. If if I read everything correctly, Nirvana was the first the first band to actually want a contract. That is correct. So that is correct. And back then, yeah. I was just, so how did that how did that work with the band? Did they just come in and, and record, and then you released it, and you split profits? I mean, how did that whole thing work? Yeah, typically the way the indie culture worked at that time, and I I think Factory Record was Factory Records was kind of instrumental in, in setting this this tone, which is uh, the label basically pays for stuff. And then once the record breaks even, anything after that is split between the artist and the label. And those were always done on handshake deals. And it was very, very common to do business that way. And a couple things we did learn, uh, you know, some major labels came around and they were interested. And we were like, yeah, well, we'll consider this. And when they found out that none of our bands are on contract, they're like, well, there's no way we can do business with you without that. So we were kind of in transition and Nirvana did approach us and, and ask for a contract. And, uh, there's, there's a little drama there. I'll let people Google it. I won't go into it too much, but we, we came up with a contract that was essentially Xerox from a book out of a library <laughs> and Poneman contract used a little white out because we, we literally didn't have the money to hire an attorney, right? Wow. That would have been too expensive. And I remember the band was in in the office and they're signing the contract and I just had, you know, you just have this moment like, hmm, hmm, I don't know, this this could be a significant moment, you know, this, 
this yeah. could be significant. And it just, it was one of those yeah. gut feelings like this might be a big deal. And it, and it was, it basically saved the company without that contract. Sub pop absolutely would not have stayed in business. And that's what led to the really, the, uh, inclusion of sub pop on nevermind on the nevermind release yes yes we had we had the band on contract so the sub pop logo is on the back of nevermind and rightfully so you know we introduced them to the producer butch vig we introduced them to the photographer michael levine who took the cover photo and we were a very well connected machine we just didn't have very much cash but we knew who the creatives were we knew who the most talented people were, and um, that's that's how you you exist as an indie. You you see the talent, and hopefully that talent isn't charging a whole lot of money. Yeah. And we yeah, so we had points on several Nirvana records. A lot of cash came in. We sold a couple million Bleach records. Uh, so that really did change change the game. But I will tell you, literally two weeks before Smells Like Teen Spirit came out you know it came out in mid-september of 1991 yeah i'll tell you there was a there was an infamous infamous convention called the uh independent pop underground okay in an olympia uh, and fugazi played there l7 came up there were a lot of really cool bands from around the country that came to olympia and kind of had an anti-convention essentially. Okay. This is when is was in late. This was literally literally two weeks before Teen Spirit came out, and I realized that Sub Pop had less than a hundred dollars in the bank. Oh wow! And I know this because I was trying to get paid a hundred bucks, and I had to go to my own ATM which didn't have much more than that and pay this guy off at the convention. It was literally, I was draining my personal account to pay the last tiny bill. Well, it wasn't the last bill. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, so two weeks later, smells like teen spirit comes out. And a few weeks after that smells, uh, you know, nevermind comes out. And by Christmas, uh, you know, this is three months later. I remember being in Chicago and realizing that we were going to get a check for half a million bucks God. just on royalty. And, you know, a month later I realized, oh, actually we're going to get a check for a million bucks, you know? And so wow. that's all from going from literally nothing to, to that, that huge success. So trust me, I was, uh, <laughs> it was pretty mind blowing. That's amazing. And be, but before that happened, there was a, a really interesting collaboration, which has just come out recently in the past, well, I guess now it's almost 10 years. The the jury sessions with Lanigan and Cobain and Mark Pickerel and Chris Novoselic, I believe, right? Right, right. Uh, and one of those no, songs... No, I'll be totally honest with you. I'm not, I'm not really familiar with that. Okay. I, 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 it sounds like it sure should be, but as I mentioned earlier, I live on a remote island. I, I try to keep pace with stuff. Uh, and in general, I'd say I, I, I have been keeping pace with stuff, but I'm actually not familiar with that. So thanks for bringing that to my attention. Oh, man. Well, it was now one of those songs. That was the uh, the sessions where they did the uh, all the Lead Belly songs. And 
I guess my my big question. Oh wait, wait. I'm sorry. Are you talking about a recording that happened like in 1990? Yes, yes. The ones that the uh, the, the infamous. Oh, I believe oh. they called themselves the Jury oh. at that point. Well, no, no, no. So okay, I I know what you're talking about. I know what you're talking about. Okay, in 1990, we released a solo album by Mark Lanigan, and Kurt Cobain stepped in on a cover of the Lead Belly song, as did Nova Selich. Mark Pickerel, who was the drummer with the Screaming Trees, uh, also played on it. So... I don't know if if um, per, potentially the the Lanigan record got repackaged with another name, but I'm not familiar with it being referenced as the jury. But I'm very familiar with that recording because Sub Pop put it out in 1990. Right, I, I believe uh, in the Nirvana that box set that came out like 10, 12 years ago. Um, when the lights out, I think at that point they just they said it was called the jury. Interesting. Okay. Well, it wasn't referred to as the jury at that time. Ah, okay. So okay. that could have been that. like, you know, uh, but it's super cool. And that Lanigan record um, is called The Winding Sheet. At least it was when we released it. And I always thought it was totally amazing. Oh, that's one of my favorite Lanigan releases ever. I, I love that album. Yeah, he's super talented. Now, the, uh, the question I have about that, that case isn't really about those sessions or anything, because I, I think if, any fans of Mark Lanigan, Screaming Trees, and Nirvana, pretty familiar with that by getting the box set with with the other three tracks on it. But I was wondering if there were ever any collaborations like that that happened that just kind of fizzled out and, and nothing was ever nothing ever came of it. Any other like I guess sub pop super groups that really nobody knows about. No, but I, there is an obscure recording that I will just throw out into the internet sphere here, and that is there was a project that Kurt Cobain played on, and there are tapes I know floating around, and he was playing with uh, Calvin Johnson, who was a visionary of sorts and right, led yeah. the band Beat Happening, but he, but he was also in a, gr- a group called The Go Team, and Toby Vale, who was a drummer and is a drummer for Bikini Kill, was in the group. And of course, Kurt, the song Smells Like Teen Spirit. Uh, anyway, really, he, he had a crush on Toby Vale at the time. Uh. So he jumped in on a couple of the go-team tracks. And this is back in, I think, 1990 or so. Uh, so I'm just going to mention that. And I know last time I talked to Calvin, he said, yeah, I'm actually sitting on some tapes that have never been released. I'm like, okay, that's interesting. Wow. So for collector types, uh, 
I'm just putting that out there because that's the, I think it might be some of the last super rare Cobain related recordings that may eventually surface. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I I had never heard of that. That's news to me. That's uh, now there's one of my favorite tracks. It, it's it's a hilarious track, Soundgarden Sub Pop Rock City. And you appear oh, yeah. on that. That is, I'm, I'm assuming that's actually you on the recording. I just want to know what, what the heck's going on. Well, you know, I just problem. What the heck's going on? Yeah, okay, well, do you think you'd have too much of trouble if we got rid of our cyberns? At your earliest convenience. Well, I know you've said that before, but do you think Bruce of mine? This is Bruce Pappas. Well, Bruce, I mean, okay, can we have our drummer back, Bruce? Bye. <laughs> Yes, it is. That's from uh, an, an answering machine, and I'm not even sure whose answering machine <laughs> that was. Uh, but they just, they, they were, yeah, those guys, see, like I said, the, 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 the grunge guys, they really did have a sense of humor, so. Now, did they tell you that they was wanted good. to do that before? That was a good one. Yeah, did they tell you they wanted to do that before they, uh, they oh, put the whole thing together? Oh, no. We had no idea. They just handed us the tape, and it's just like, well, what are you going to do? <laughs> oh, man, that's that's hilarious. That's got to be kind of a shock to realize that you're on a Soundgarden recording. Yeah, it's it's trip. It's trip. Uh, Kim was always kind of a smart ass, though. That did not surprise me at all. <laughs> all right, so I wanted to ask you some stuff about Nirvana's tour. Now, the book, you had a, a book that came out a little while ago about touring with them in, in Europe in 89, I believe you said. Um, yep. I read that that quite often they were on stage destroying their instruments and you would be the one tasked with getting repairs done or replacements. How how Did they do that a lot? Is that is that the case that you were kind of the, the they, go-to they, guy? They did do that. They did it almost all the time. And... Uh, there were times when we had we were tasked, we were given the task of getting a guitar. And in this book, Experiencing Nirvana, there is an example of this where they played a show in Rome. Kurt, not only did he smash his guitar, but he really had enough with touring and he climbed the PA and threatened to jump off. And I would say had a had a breakdown, like literally had a breakdown on stage. And he went backstage and, and said that the, the band was was over with. It was done. And this is all documented in the book. And I know that the next day. John and I took Kurt to a guitar store and I have a picture of them in the guitar store where John is buying Kurt a new guitar because he had just trashed his last one. And you got to realize nobody had any money at that time. The band didn't, we didn't. And so it was a little, I would say it was a little excessive considering the financial circumstances. 
Yeah, but it's it's all there in the book. That had to put a quite a strain on you guys. Yeah, it's not like we were always following them around and doing that, but uh, I, I do have a documented case where indeed we we spent some of our last cash buying him another guitar and um what they were doing now, there were a ton of bands in the seattle area and and a lot of them actually weren't on sub pop because obviously there's competing labels and all. was there a band like a, a one that got away story that you always wanted to sign but never never were able to for sub pop well yeah there's 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 a lot of stuff it's like that. <laughs> um, I know, well, to make it really interesting, uh, we had a, a receptionist, Chris Tacchino, was like, oh, there's some good good bands around. And he wound up signing Modest Mouse and also, God, it's on the tip of my tongue, the band from Idaho. Um Jeez, why can't I think of this? this, <laughs> this name? Uh, Built to Spill. Oh, okay. Okay. Modest Mouse and Built to Spill were both signed by our receptionist who started his own label. Wow. And in fact, it's like, damn, that receptionist should have been doing A&R for Sub Pop. I'll tell you, there's just... There's so much going on, so much, you know, there's so much competition. It's so crazy um, that it's hard to just stay on top of everything. But in particular, I thought, yeah, we got scooped not once but twice by our receptionist. Oh, so. Well, I, I can only imagine the atmosphere there. You know, it's it, it, you're looking at that time of the, the early 90s, Sub Pop's, you know, starting to, to, to explode and, and – Seattle is literally the center of the music world. So I, I can only imagine what your office was like. Yeah. No, it was insane. And there were international travelers coming in. We actually opened up a store across the street just so we could deal with all the tourists. And there was a time in the early 90s where literally every day, every single day, John and I were doing interviews uh, I remember one day a Spanish television crew showed up and I'm like, yep, that's just another day in the office. <laughs> and that, that just became normal. Oh, man. Now, I threw out uh, to some of the, the on the social media a little bit that I'd be talking with you tonight and asked if anybody had any questions. And uh, uh, a couple of them came up and, you know, a lot of the typical ones. What did it feel like? working with some of these guys, you know, but at the time, you know, you did, you may have had the feeling, but they, you know, they weren't as big as they would eventually become. Um, but there was a, a question. Uh, somebody wanted to know if there's any recordings from your days in Olympia by bands like Mr. Brown or tiny holes uh, that might be available that never really got the exposure they deserved. Well, that's, it, uh, it's interesting you should mention that. Uh, Mr. Brown, by the way, was uh, an indie label in, in Olympia. Oh, okay. Uh, which put out cool stuff, particularly by an artist, Steve Fisk, who uh, Steve went Fisk. on to record some Nirvana stuff for us. He recorded a track called Been a Sun, for example, and Stain. He's a very creative producer, and he was actually in my band, Tiny Holes, and that record... Uh, called City Under Siege. That album literally came out a month ago on K Records. 
in that the uh, it's just a live recording. You know, it's something I did when I was 21, so I'm not really knocking on people's doors and, and convincing them to buy this record. <laughs> but it does exist. It exists, and you can hear me, uh, uh, you know, expressing myself as a, as a, as a very creative 21 year old. So we'll just leave it at that. Yeah. Well, as a, in my early 20s, one of the, uh, the highlights of, of my, early to mid twenties was uh, sending a demo tape to sub pop and getting rejected. So I want to, I want to thank oh, you guys for that. So I hope you framed that letter. I, yes, my, well, my buddy has it. I got to get a copy of it, but he, yes, he definitely has it framed. We had uh, me on guitar. And I'd never taken a lesson, him on bass and we had a drums with no cymbals and no singer. And it, none of us no. had ever taken a lesson. Very good. We, we well, were like, that sounds like, we yeah. were like the, we were like the thrown ups, but with no, without the talent. <laughs> That's funny. The thrown ups were definitely a classic. <laughs> As we still, I still have that vinyl too. That's that's, that's uh, one wow. to listen to for sure. Wow. Okay. Interesting. Those were the trippiest shows in the scene by far. Those thrown up shows. Oh, and that, that if yeah yeah, listening to those those tracks, you get a feel for how irreverent this scene was and how uh people were just having fun and then soundgarden got signed to a&m and people were like oh my god somebody actually got signed (laughs) (laughs) so what's happening that's it hey mark i think time for for dinner here so i'm i'm good for another question or two and then i'm gonna thank you and thank you yes sir um the actually um the one thing that I, I do ask, I have one question, and um, it, it's kind of a weird question. So uh, if if you're not, it it it's it came from one of the social media people. So what, uh, if if you don't want to answer it, we can edit it out. Uh, one one follower on Reddit wanted to know um, they were friends with uh, they have a mutual friend with you named Phil Hertz, and they were wondering. Yes. Uh, they said that the two of you had had a falling out, but. The, Phil actually passed away last August, and so they want—they were just curious as to uh, what that was all about, and because uh, Phil never told them, and uh, they weren't sure if you knew that he had oh. passed, and so they wanted me to let well, you know. Yeah, sure. Phil was the drummer in Tiny Holes. Uh, I've always considered Phil a friend. I've never thought of us as having a falling out. Uh, certainly he moved to Chicago, so we didn't see each other that much, but, uh, I talked to Phil about a year ago. I did not realize he was basically dealing with brain cancer and he did not mention this at the time. I am aware that he passed, uh, and it's a, a sad moment. Phil was an awesome guy, a huge, huge music fan and, um, was deeply involved with creating music and, uh, working for music distributors, uh, just just an awesome guy, and it's, it's, it's sad that he's left us. All right, well, I really do. I really 
do want to thank you for coming on and, and spending so much time. I know we, we've gone over what we originally planned to, to spend on this, but, so I thank you so much. It really means a lot. Well, thanks so much, my friend. I really appreciate it. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.